I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peace builders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to communities, eavesdrop on their communities and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by... Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of She Talks Peace. I'm Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, joining you from Manila. It's December. The weather is uh, getting cooler and cooler, but in areas like uh, the Middle East and Gaza, the temperature, both the physical temperature and political temperature, isn't getting any cooler. And that's uh, really such a tragedy because as we are recording this, we are actually marking over one week already of 16 days activism against gender-based violence. And this is an annual international campaign that started way back in 1991, urging people around the world to call for the prevention and elimination of violence against women and girls. It starts on November 25, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, and runs until December 10, which is Human Rights Day. And I know that you've been watching the news coming from Gaza, and you can see that women, children, especially girls, are so horrifically affected by the violence that's going on in Gaza. And we in the Philippines, together with most of our fellow ASEAN citizens are all hoping and praying that there will be an end to this unwarranted attack against civilians in Gaza. We have had this discussion in other episodes of She Talks Peace. And while we acknowledge the right of Israel to defend its territory, the right of the government to protect the lives of citizens and to protect the state. Still, there are rules of war. And the rules of war protect innocent, protect civilians. 
And I don't see much protection going on, you know, for the innocents, for the civilians, uh, most of them just hoping to you know, escape, just hoping to have water and food for the children, for the family. Not much protection for them, as if the world isn't in bad shape already. We have to have active conflicts that we're, we're seeing in, uh, in Gaza. And my dear friends, as um, the campaign against violence against women and girls is gone growing, there are other kinds of problems, other kinds of discrimination that affects women and girls. And one of these uh, issues, which I was so surprised, doesn't seem to be really that much discussed, is the right of a mother to give her citizenship to her child. Now, in the Philippines, we don't think much of it because both mother and father can give their citizenship to, to their children, but not in many countries, it seems. And I was really quite surprised about that. There's a list, Bahamas, Bahrain, Barbados here in ASEAN, Brunei Darussalam, and so on and so forth, including Gaza. And what really surprised me was that most of the countries that do not give women the right to pass their citizenship onto their children are mostly Muslim-dominated countries. It's, um, in a way, a bit curious for me why most of these countries are Muslim-dominated countries, including Malaysia. And I'm so happy that our guest today is somebody who can tell us a little bit more about this issue and why it is so important for women to be able to pass on citizenship rights to their children. And uh, the guest that we have for today is a dedicated feminist and activist with a strong commitment to promoting gender equality and justice. And uh, she's none other than Suri Kempe of Malaysia. Over the years, Suri has championed various causes in Malaysia related to gender and inclusion. She's the driving force behind Family Frontiers, an organization fighting for equal citizenship rights for Malaysian women. One of her notable efforts with Family Frontiers includes actively challenging a Court of Appeals decision that reversed the High Court's ruling, allowing women to confer citizenship by operation of law. Additionally, Suri is the co-founder of Queer Lapis, an NGO that serves the LGBTQ plus community by providing a platform for queer voices, views, and resources. Suri's impressive background includes holding the Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment Portfolio at the UN Development Program in Malaysia. Her passion for promoting gender equality extends to feminist counseling, which her firm, Kemban Collective, provides. And you know what? 
She has been recognized with the Impact Award at the Tatler Ball 2022. Welcome to She Talks Peace, Suri. Hi, my mamina. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. I know we've been trying to schedule this conversation for months now. And so it's fine. It's really a relief and, and such a great pleasure on my part to be here with you and, and have this conversation. Oh, the pleasure is all ours, Suri. By the way, I was reading up on you. And I saw this news article earlier in 2022, I think February or March. And um, this young reporter was extolling you, saying that and, and saying that you are very happy with the decision of the cabinet, the Malaysian cabinet, to actually amend the constitution so that women could have the right to pass on their citizenship to their children. So. So how's that coming along? Uh, have you seen any moves already to make that change happen? My God, uh, let me uh, maybe tell you a little bit more about, about the situation. So in Malaysia, Malaysia is quite interesting because when it comes to citizenship, women who have non-Malaysian spouses mm -hmm. and whose children are then born abroad do not have the right to confer citizenship to their children. Now, this is in contrast to Malaysian men who can marry anybody they want, regardless of yeah. their citizenship, and mm -hmm. those children can be born anywhere in the world, and that child then has a right or is immediately and automatically uh, given Malaysian, recognized as a Malaysian citizen. And so one of the things that uh, my organization, one of the organizations I'm with, Family Frontiers, has long been lobbying for, uh, has been this right of Malaysian mothers to be able to have the equal right to confer citizenship to their children. Of course, this is also something that affects me personally because um, my mother is a Malaysian and my father is a German citizen. And, um, and when they were married here, uh, they moved abroad for a little bit, and I was born in Germany. Me and my sister were yeah. born in Germany, and therefore we were not uh, Malaysian citizens. So for me, this is an intergenerational problem mm -hmm. because the same thing that happened to, and so I was only uh, I was only uh, able to become a citizen after years of applying, and when I was eighteen, I was finally given the choice to uh, given the option to become a Malaysian citizen. My application for citizenship was uh, approved. And so I guess the key word here is the word application. So for mothers uh, whose children are born abroad, you will have to apply for citizenship mm -hmm. like every, like any other foreigner. There's nothing special or there's no privilege or there's nothing that facilitates the process faster because the mother is a Malaysian citizen. So we have to apply. And when I was 18, my application was approved. So I am now a Malaysian citizen. But of course, um, because this is a systemic problem um, and one that is ingrained in our laws, um, this problem uh, repeated itself with, as luck as fate would have it, this problem repeated itself with both myself and my sister. I married an American citizen and my child was born abroad as I was completing my master's. And uh, my sister is married to a uh, non-Malaysian as well. And her children were born abroad as well. And so uh, as fate would have it, both of our children did not uh, end up with Malaysian citizenship either. 
And so I had to, again, apply for my daughter's citizenship. Uh, and she was granted that after quite an extensive uh, period. And so, you know, a lot of times oh, the response that we get from um, whether it is government servants or initially the public as well, mm -hmm. what's the problem? Why don't you just register? Isn't it a sure outcome? Isn't it a guaranteed outcome that your application will be approved? And the answer to that is no, because it is an extremely long, cumbersome and, and non-transparent, opaque process, which often takes, you know, you first, you put in an application and you don't hear anything for about five years. And then your first, um, the likelihood that your application is rejected is about 98 to 99%. There have been years where, you know, the, basically the average success rate of an application being approved of women, mother, Malaysian mothers in our situation uh, is about 1%. By the way, Suri, tell me, why discriminate against mothers? What is the harm in having mothers pass on their citizenship to their children if their spouses are are foreigner is this is this a thing for racial purity what is it <laughs> i think i think uh, racial purity might play a role in that is potentially part of that but i think the larger bulk of that argument is uh, the patriarchy i would i would look towards the patriarchy and i think also uh, the colonial legacy laws right so when malaysia was um, first gained independence when we drafted our federal constitution the idea was that it is only men who can confer citizenship to uh, their children but of course um, now that situation has changed women are much more mobile women are more likely to travel abroad in fact in malaysia uh, most women it is more, more women than men travel abroad to either pursue their education or pursue job opportunities and you know during that time tend to meet their spouse and and um their life partner and have children and so this has become an untenable situation and we saw this in particular during covid right mm. uh, when when you had um mothers with children who could not come back to malaysia because non-malaysians were not given entry into the country under any circumstances and oh. so then you had mothers whose parents were, you know, we had we have cases of mothers whose parents were dying or, were, you know, basically of ill health because of COVID. And they could not come back because the option that was put forth to them is you either leave your children and come back alone or you don't see your parents. Right. You stay with your children and you cannot come back. So. So this is, I mean, this put a lot of women in this really untenable situation and it was heartbreaking for a lot of them to be, to not be able to come back at all and see their parents or, or for those women who, whose children were here. And as we know, during COVID, there was a huge locked, um, slowdown and in fact, lockdown of immigration services. So their children would overstay or they were in fear that their children would overstay their visas and they couldn't get the visa renewals in time. And when they did, when they did go to the immigration office, they were told that, well, your child will have to leave the country and come back. But at a time when COVID, re COVID regulations were in place, this was an untenable solution. Yeah. This just mm -hmm. wasn't something because then your child wouldn't be able to come back in because they're not That's a citizen. Right. So, That's right. so it just wasn't possible. And, and, 
you know, when we asked, I mean, going back to your original question, when you asked um, wh why why discriminate against women, what is the excuse that the government yes. has typically given us? Their response has usually been, well, we don't allow dual citizenship, and therefore children who are children from Malaysian mothers are likely to be a national security threat. And so their argument has always <laughs> been national security. Correct. And so, you know, uh, of course, our response has always been, you know, how is my child a national security threat? How can my child be a national security threat when their family is in Malaysia and this is the only country they've ever known? In a lot of instances, mothers are here with their children. And for those who are abroad, a lot of them want the option to come back. Because at the end of the day, when we look at it, this conundrum, that women find themselves in is not one that men find themselves in. Men aren't forced to make these options, but women are. And, and so, of course, then we come back to this question that you asked, why women? And, you know, of course, when we push and the, the government and government representatives to try and unpack this argument for national security, a lot of them can't answer the question because, they, because you ask, how is my child a threat to national security? Exactly. You know? And, and a lot of men at the end of the day have children who are born abroad as well. And as it stands, those children who are born abroad, especially in countries where the only requirement for citizenship is that the child is born in that country, for example, the mm -hmm. United States. United France, States. Right? The child is born there and automatically then receives American uh, citizenship. It's also privileged enough to have access to dual citizenship. But this mm -hmm. isn't a criteria that is then, you know, or isn't a criteria that is then uh, left to men or they're not questioned on the fact that their child might have dual citizenship. And so, so when it comes to this accusation of a national security threat, why is it then only leveled against women as a means to justify our, our non, like the non-recognition of our equal right as a citizen? Mm -hmm. By the way, so talking the about... Um equal rights, why is it so important if you're talking about economic, social, political, cultural rights, why is it so important for mothers to also be able to pass uh, their citizenship to their, their children, especially in, uh, in Malaysia? What happens to the children of Malaysian mothers who cannot get Malaysian citizenship? What barriers are in their way? I think that's an excellent question because really that is at the crux of this entire fight for equal rights, right? Because when it comes to it, citizenship is a gateway right. It, it opens the door to a whole host of other rights which enable you to live a life of dignity and, and, and mm -hmm. value. So for example, as if, as if you have citizenship of that country, then you are entitled to the right to education, the right to housing, the right to employment, the ability to open a bank account, yeah, uh, the right to, to do a whole host of health services, for example. These are fundamental services that each and every citizen of a country is entitled to. And without that, we have, you know, a lot of mothers, Malaysian mothers, whose children are here, who are non-citizens, who are now then unable to access these services. Now, there's a, often um, an assumption, a false assumption that is um, leveled against mothers. The assumption is that if you marry a foreigner, then of course you're well, you must be well off. 
right? There's mm. an implicit sort of racism and classism in this mm-hmm. assumption that if you marry someone, you're going to marry a white man from a, a global North country and you're going to be well off. And therefore you don't need access to these basic services, but that is absolutely false. You know, not everybody you meet is going to be a rich white man. That's right. <laughs> so, and it has nothing to do with your right. Absolutely. So for a lot of these mothers, you know, we have mothers, for example, who uh, one mother who has two children, both who are on the autism spectrum. And for her, Mm. you can only choose, you know, she has to choose which child she can send for therapy because only she can only afford therapy for one child because private sector um, health services, healthcare is much too much uh, too expensive. Who do you send to school? It, you know, it's not it's not practical that every child uh, who is a non-citizen goes to private school. This is expensive. Yeah. Not everybody can afford it. So then, what happens? What, what ends up happening is you deny uh, all these children who are whose parents are unable to afford private sector services these basic essential services which you need to live a good life, a, li- a quality life. Yeah, so it's it's terribly it's terribly uh, there's a terrible impact on the children, but also on the mothers, right? Because a lot of mothers who are in this situation, um, if they are abroad, for example, they are often and and the children are not Malaysian citizens. In fact, they follow the citizenship of the father. Then they mm-hmm. are uh, often when if you know sometimes it happens, uh, you are trapped in a marriage where which is abusive. Then you find it difficult to leave because you ch- you cannot you cannot immediately bring your children back with you to Malaysia because these children are non citizens yeah. they are citizens of another country and so a lot of times mothers compromise their own safety and life uh, in order to stay with their children rather than give them up and come back and flee a situation which is uh, which is bad for her. There's also the situation where sometimes we uh, in there are cases where we have mothers who marry refugees or someone who's That's very complicated, yeah. So what happens then? What happens when you marry someone who is a refugee or who is an asylum seeker or who is right. or who is stateless? What happens then? Then if these children are then required, if the theory is that the children inherit the citizenship from the father, but in this case, mm-hmm. the father has no citizenship to, right. to pass down to the child, then the child becomes stateless. And so you have a mother who has citizenship, who should, for all intents and purposes, be able to pass that down, but no, the child is relegated stateless because of this archaic notion that only fathers can pass down citizenship. And at the end of the day, the truth is, the the reality, the global reality is, is that Malaysia is only one of 25 countries in the world that do not give mothers and fathers uh, equal rights to pass nationality onto their children. It's astounding. That means 170 countries in the world right. give women the equal right to confer citizenship. But Malaysia is one <laughs> you of know, sorry. I was just I was just going to to say that um, She Talks Peace has now reached 101 countries. And most of the countries on the list, countries that do not give mothers the right to confer citizenship on their their offspring includes uh, Bahamas, Bahrain, Barbados, Brunei, Guinea, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Madagascar, Malaysia, of course, Mauritania, Nepal, Oman, Qatar, 
Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Swaziland, Syria, United Arab Emirates, West Bank, and Gaza. And I was just thinking, Suri, for our listeners who are in these countries, it, they might, if they're in a, a similar situation, they should be able to get a lot of uh, tips from you on uh, on what to do. That so, dear listeners, if you have questions, ideas that you want to pass on to Suri Kempe, email us at shetalkspeacepodcast at gmail.com. Let me repeat that, shetalkspeacepodcast at gmail.com or our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts at shetalkspeace. Now, let's get back to, to the conversation with Suri. Suri, you have a well, relatively new Prime Minister, are you optimistic that uh, the cabinet decision is um, going to be implemented and there, there will be uh, you know, a reform, a change in your federal constitution? So in February, the government had announced, as you mentioned earlier, Ma'am Amina, um, the government had announced earlier that it was going to change, uh, make those amendments. And to the federal constitution to give women the equal right to confer citizenship to their children. However, I mean, and of course, of course, we were so excited. We were all extremely excited. Mothers, I think, were were mm-hmm. thrilled because for a lot, for a lot of mothers, for a lot of families, especially the ones whose children are now above twenty one and and can no longer apply for citizenship on the basis that their mother is a Malaysian citizen. Oh. Um, they are, they are, of course, then because they age out, right? There's a cap to it. So uh, they are, in effect, uh, foreigners. And so a lot of times they cannot stay in the country without a work permit or a visa or some kind of special dispensation that allows them to stay. And so for, you know, a lot of times this, this discrimination causes families to separate, to split up because the children cannot stay with their mother. And it has caused a lot of heartache for a lot of mothers and their children. We, I have, uh, we have one uh, young man who is 24, Daniel, who in fact represents Malaysia, ironically represents Malaysia in a lot of uh, motorcycle, like racing competitions. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and is not, uh, is not a citizen, but uh, he, is, uh, he, was, he was able to stay here uh, because he was pursuing higher education, so he was on a student visa, and um, you know he was clo- uh, when he was close to graduating. Uh, you know, we of course talked to him and said, you know, you must be so excited to graduate. And he said, you know, I know graduating is is supposed to be a very um, is supposed to be a milestone in in a young person's life. It's supposed to be a time of happiness and joy, uh, but. Unfortunately for me, every day closer to my graduation is the day closer that I have to leave my mother, which is quite heartbreaking. Very hard. Yeah. And so, you know, we think about it. So, of course, when the government made the announcement, we were just so thrilled. However, you know, as as law reform goes, it's never a straightforward process. One would have Mm -hmm. hoped that it would. But uh, unfortunately, in this situation, a few months later, we were informed that the government was introducing a bucket of amendments. That means several amendments. And some of these amendments were very progressive and good. One of them was on Malaysian mothers who are married to non-Malaysians uh-huh. and would, you know, and would give them equal citizenship rights. But they bundled this together 
with other amendments that are regressive. In fact, what this oh. means, yes, they, uh, the other amendments that are proposed in this bundle are would remove existing citizenship rights in the federal constitution and that would have the cumulative effect of making three groups of vulnerable uh, people uh, more vulnerable to statelessness. So these would be abandoned children or foundlings. So currently in the federal constitution, it guarantees that if any child whose parents' parentage cannot be ascertained, who is found abandoned, or you know, hence called foundling, um, those children are entitled to Malaysian citizenship by operation of law, would, would no longer have access to this provision. Uh, children of Malaysian uh, per, uh, Malaysians with permanent resident cards would initially have uh, access to Malaysian citizenship. However, they're trying to take that away, and this, of course, affects not just um, not just any kind of permanent resident, but we're talking about um, group communities who have uh, traditionally had difficulty obtaining citizenship, right? So there's a legacy of statelessness. So, for example, indigenous communities, uh, the orang asal, orang asli, That's right. Uh, right, who who have had difficulties. So their children and who only have been issued uh, a temporary solution, meaning as a permanent resident. So now in this situation, they would still uh, their children would be rendered stateless. And and then of course there's the category of a foreign wife to a Malaysian man, who after mm. giving up her citizenship, it, once she has received Malaysian citizenship, their proposal is is that if after receiving Malaysian citizenship, she divorces the man two years after that. Within two years, mm -hmm. her citizenship will be revoked. But because Malaysia doesn't accept dual citizenship, when she receives Malaysian citizenship, she by, by virtue of receiving it, she has to give up her other citizenship. So if she then, as if fate has it that she divorces, gets divorced within two years after receiving Malaysian citizenship, and they revoke her Malaysian citizenship. She has no citizenship, no other citizenship to fall back on, which then renders her stateless. And it also traps women in potentially violent situations uh, of abuse. Oh, you cannot so, escape. Yes, exactly. So these are all terribly regressive amendments, which mm. means that if this bundle of amendments is tabled in parliament as is, it's passing. If it passes, it will mean a win for Malaysian mothers and their children, but simultaneously deprive other groups of vulnerable children of their citizenship rights. However, should the proposed amendments fail, it will mean the status quo, which means mothers will not be able to confer citizenship to their children while existing protections for other children remain. Yeah. Well, so what I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. that family frontiers will be lobbying to strike out the regressive uh, proposals and just focus on the more progressive ones and one of the the first regressive proposal um, you mentioned the case of foundlings i'm curious what will the state do i mean these kids have no parents where are they going to deport the children to if they're stateless that is so weird isn't it that, so that's what in our lobbying that's exactly what we've been asking as well you're like what is your plan for stateless children you what deny children uh, citizenship and thus you deny them education, you deny them health care, you deny them all sorts of basic fundamental rights, but you don't allow them to leave either. You trap them in this country with no other options to live. What is What kind of a solution is that? 
And so, and so this is essentially the point that we've been arguing with, uh, that we've been putting forward to the government uh, in trying to, like you said, pull back on the regressive amendments, because really, I don't think they've studied it enough. So um, Family Frontiers has, uh, is working together with many, many organizations that are working on statelessness. And this is something that we've mm -hmm. been uh, collectively uh, lobbying for, that, that they decouple the amendments so that they move forward with the progressive amendments and then that they um, hold back on the regressive ones to study, to further study other viable alternatives or solutions. Because they really, I, you know, the way it sounds at the moment, based on the information that we have, they really haven't thought this through. Does it seem like they have, Suri? They haven't really thought this through. But, you know, as, as important as this issue is, I can't let you go without having a question about your other advocacy, uh, rights of diversity, the LGBTQ community. Now, I know that Malaysia is becoming more and more uh, following very fundamentalist uh, interpretations of Islam. So I can tell that your work only gets harder year by year. What's the situation now? How is the LGBTQ community managing in Malaysia? And what does Queer Lapis do to help? By the way, when I saw Queer Lapis, the only thing I could think of, Queer Cakes? Because when you tell me Lapis, I think the multi-layer cakes. I said, what on earth is a Queer Cake? <laughs> so what does queer lapis? What does queer lapis do? So queer lapis is uh, less, I guess, less an organization, more more a web website um, and a resource center in that sense, an online virtual resource center. Um, and so what we it was initially conceptualized as a way to put out positive messaging and narratives by the community for the community, by LGBT people for LGBT people. And so Queer Lapis is simply a play on, like you said, the layer cake. Ah, <laughs> okay, all right. Queer Lapis, and it basically is a, I think, is a, is a nod to the diversity that comprises not just Malaysia, but I think the Nusantara and the, and the, and the Southeast Asian region. Right, we are mm -hmm. such a diverse community, not just in terms of uh, composition, in terms of ethnicities or race, but but also in terms of sexuality and sexual diversity. I mean, Southeast Asia is recognized as one of the most diverse regions in the world historically, even. Mm -hmm. And Queer um, Lapis was, you know, uh, given that the in the context in Malaysia at the time when we first began Queer Lapis, was that. There was a lot of negative, uh, negative rhetoric and negative stories, uh, and negative framing of um, of, of uh, LGBT people. And so, what we wanted was a platform and a space where uh, queer people could tell stories about themselves, so that it became that we became more than just this alphabet soup of of individuals, right? Or uh, that at the end of the day, people had space to talk about their identities in a positive and affirming uh, way. So that was what Queer Lapis was. Um, at the moment, we've hit kind of a funding glitch, and that's uh, so we slowed down on producing stories a little bit because, you know, as you know, <laughs> a lot of times you need resources and funds to run this, but we've managed to maintain the site 
and as it stands. But of course, we're constantly fundraising for more resources to be able to continue the work. How's the situation now, Suri? In, uh, in Malaysia, it's gotten, it's gotten uh, worse, to be honest. Um, despite the new prime minister, uh, who I think ran on a well, who ran on a reformist platform. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. Right, uh, but I also, you know, he was also, as you know, you probably know, he was also associated with um, yeah. the uh, like accusations with accusations of um, sodomy and mm-hmm. of course uh, being gay and whatnot, and so. I think in part to consolidate his position and to ensure his reputation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he Basically, this government has, I think, been less uh, reformist when it comes to, and I'm being kind here, less reformist when it comes to LGBT people. In fact, they've they've pushed back and become even more regressive, right? So... So they've wanted to distance themselves from this idea that Anwar is gay, Anwar is LGBT, mm-hmm. and and basically, um, in as a res- as as a response, then have become uh, the opposite of friendly, right? So not just neutral. Neutral would have been better than what it is now, which is actively against. And so they've been, you know, mobilizing, and I think also uh, more conservative. Uh, parties or sectors of the of society have really used this as a means to push back and clamp down on LGBT people and really made life a lot more difficult. And I think more than that, they've used inst- the, the institutional power of the state to come up with anti-LGBT um, policies, uh, actions. So, you know, so something as basic as so, or something as simple as, say, for example, swatch. Uh, the government makes its stance known uh, with something as simple as swatch watches, right? Remember, the, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this whole um, scandal of uh, swatch watches having LGBT, the LGBT face, a uh, watch face or uh, straps that were in rainbow colors. Um, and oh, then the, gov- yeah. the government swoops in and raids uh, swatch and and basically. Uh, takes those all away um, on the pretext that this is all pro-LGBT and in promotion of the LGBT agenda. Um, so, you know, it's something from as basic as as that, which for all intents and purposes can seem ludicrous to the outsider. But, you know, it's something from as basic as that to, to establishing more anti-LGBT institutions, you know, re- re- um, to encourage reform, uh, to reform the individual, right? Well, Suri, you, I mean, um, we shouldn't feel so bad about the raid on on a swatch uh, because that doesn't make Malaysia unique. If you recall, <laughs> earlier earlier in the year, in the United States, for goodness sake, remember this was uh, during um, uh, the Pride uh, Pride Day, right? And um, Walmart and all of these other chains were selling rainbow t-shirts and you had groups of um, extreme right-wing organizations going to those stores and seizing the you know the, the merchandise so much so that many of the stores removed the merchandises that they were actually selling i mean now 
a, a rainbow is is something that I have to be afraid of. It's <laughs> it's get it's really bordering on on the ridiculous. If it didn't have so much impact on uh, on human rights, but you know, sorry, I I wish you well in in the work that you do. Uh, very challenging on both sides. So let me ask you a personal question, Suri. Given that you're juggling two heavy balls, Suri, how do you manage not to get completely oppressed? What is your secret to to have some balance, <laughs> some balance in your life, or or perhaps you like juggling the two heavy? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. What is my secret? That is an interesting question that I don't think I've, uh, I've been asked before. For me, fundamentally, you know, the work that we do can be depressing, obviously. Because this is the reality that we face every day. Yeah. But I think in doing so, I think there's also a certain amount of taking power back in in actively addressing the factors that oppress someone or that oppress me, mm-hmm. uh, the discriminations that affect me. There is a certain amount of taking power back. You know, we are not just helpless in the face of these oppressions. We have the power to change things and we are exerting our right as individuals, as people, as citizens to do something, to change the situation that we find ourselves in. And I find that alone is quite, is quite empowering, right? The fact that we can and we will and we must do something to change these conditions of oppressions. We cannot just lie back. I, you know, <laughs> you and I... Yeah. You know, we face these things, we see these injustices, and we don't just lie down and play dead. We cannot. It is not in our, I think, our constitutions to be able to just lie down and take it. No, we stand up and we fight. And I think that is what drives me. That is what gives me hope. And that is what I think it is. It is a resilience and it is a, a, a resistance against injustice that we want to continue fighting, right? That lights a fire in us, I think. Absolutely right. Thank you so much, Suri, for continuing to fight the good fight. But before we go, Suri, I was wondering whether you'd like to give a message to to our listeners um, from all over the world. How can they help fight the good fight and right the wrongs? What they can do, what can they do to help Suri? The biggest, the biggest thing for me is that when you see an injustice is to stand up and do something about it. And it doesn't have to be, and we all have our spheres of influence. 
whether that is family, whether that is ourselves first, whether we need to do a self-reflection and look at our own prejudices and biases, or whether it means talking to our circle of family and friends, or whether it means being able to stand up to systemic and structural uh, oppressions and factors that, that affect our condition or affect the condition of the people around us. It doesn't just have to be about us, does it? It, it is about everybody else and the injustices that we see in the world. And, and it means being able to do something about that, even in the smallest, smallest way possible. It means that we resist. It means that we stand up against oppression and injustice. It means doing something. So find something that you are able to do. You know, a lot of times we see all these injustices and, and I can, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and easy to feel like things are so big. These injustices are so big. There's nothing I can do about it. But oftentimes I think it is about starting, even if that start is very small, even if it means doing something different, even if it means changing our, our own behavior, right? From the things that we consume to the things that we purchase to the, how do we make a statement? And then gradually that grows and becomes bigger and, and we can do things. And I think that's where the power of the individual and then the community uh, is so important and so key in driving change. And, and I guess in maybe thinking of a cliche, the only thing that comes to mind is this cliche saying like, we want to be the change we want to see in the world, right? <laughs> that, is, that is what we need to do. We need to start, even if it's small. We need to start somewhere. And so, be the change. You know, that is, yeah, be the change that we want to see, exactly. And I think uh, in line with this, I, I also, this is something that I wanted to say right in the beginning, but, um, you know, I just wanted to say I, that I appreciate uh, the introduction and, the, and the, uh, that you conveyed earlier with regards to Palestine and Gaza. And, and I really want to convey the, my solidarity and our solidarity here, my organizations, their solidarity with the people of Gaza and Palestine. It's really such a tragic thing to have happen right now. And that, and it's so brutal. So I, I you know, I, I want to state that up front and center that our solidarity is with the people of Gaza and Palestine. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that, Suri. Um, I'm happy to to share that the Philippines has actually been providing um, some kind of sanctuary to some Palestinians in um, my university, the University of the Philippines. More than 60 uh, refugees uh, have been housed at the university's dormitory. But the problem is, I mean, that's temporary housing. So uh, people are looking at what can they do to help ensure that there's some kind of transition because obviously these uh, Palestinians are now looking for sanctuary. They're, they're going to ask for asylum, but that takes a little, a little time. So, dear listeners, uh, all of you who are listening, I mean, if there are things that you can do to help Gaza, to help with um, these issues that we've been discussing, to help influence governments, to provide women the right to transfer their citizenship to, to their children. Like Suri said, don't be, you know, don't be afraid because... The quotation that uh, Suri gave about, uh, about being the change. There's another one that I also like, Suri, that, you know, don't think if you're just one drop of water, 
that you have no power because one drop of water connects with another and another and another, you become an ocean or you can become a flood that can wash away, right? The, the sins of the world or make changes that you didn't think was possible. So dear listeners, you heard uh, Suri Kempe of Malaysia. Thank you so much for uh, spending the hour with us and listening to our conversation. And again, I say, if you have some uh, messages or ideas for Suri Kempe or you have ideas about future um, subjects for our podcast, do email us at shetalkspeacepodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at she talks peace. So Suri, thanks so much for joining us. I hope to have another conversation with you, hopefully face to face if I ever get to go to Malaysia or you come to Manila. So thanks, Suri. And so long. Good luck. I I pray for more success in your good fight with the Malaysian Parliament. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you again. So dear listeners, this is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying bye for now and join us again next week. Bye. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.